Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 16 to 20 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 16 Polyphemus the Giant The Greek warriors burned and sacked the city of Troy, and then they set sail for the sunny isles of Greece. But storms overtook some. The gods sent misfortune to others, so that but few reached their own land in safety. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, an island on the west coast of Greece, suffered greater hardships than any other. For ten years he was either tossed by the gods on stormy seas or kept captive in strange countries. Of some of his adventures I shall tell you now. When Odysseus and his comrades sailed away from Troy, they were driven by a fair wind to the shore of Ismarus. Here dwelt a rich and prosperous people called the Chacones. The Greeks wished to take much spoil back with them to their homes, so they resolved to slay the Chacones and plunder their city. Some of the citizens escaped the sword of the adventurers and hastened to their kinsmen who dwelt far from the shore. When they had told their terrible tidings, their comrades armed themselves and sped to the shore to punish the strangers. Odysseus had tried in vain to make his followers go back to their ships. They had refused to be hurried and were now sitting on the seashore, eating and drinking, heedless of danger. Before they were aware, the kinsmen of the Chicones had fallen upon them, and when the sun went down, they had slain six men out of each of the strangers' ships. The rest barely escaped with their lives. Scarcely had the Greeks reached their vessel and sailed away from Ismarus when Zeus sent a north wind against them. For nine days their ships were driven hither and thither. Their sails were torn to shreds when on the tenth day 
the sailors caught sight of land. It was the land of the lotus eaters, where the people fed only on the fruit of the lotus, a fruit that brought sleep and forgetfulness to the eater. Odysseus sent three sailors on shore to find out what manner of people the lotus eaters were. No sooner had they landed than the inhabitants brought them fruit, which they ate with delight. But the honey-sweet flowers made them forget Odysseus, their comrades, and their ships. They had no wish save to stay forever with the lotus-eaters to share their magic food. At length, Odysseus grew tired of waiting for the three sailors to return, and he himself, with a few armed men, went on shore to look for them. He thought that perhaps they had been taken prisoners and had been bound with chains, but he found them lying on the yellow sand, dreamy and content. And sweet it was to dream of fatherland, of child and wife and slave, but evermore. Most weary seemed the sea, weary the oar, weary the wandering fields of barren foam. When the three sailors saw Odysseus, they cried, We will return no more. And all at once they sang, Our island home is far beyond the wave, We will no longer roam. Odysseus and his comrades were offered fruit by the kindly lotus-eaters, but Odysseus waved it aside and bade his men drag away the three sailors who had already eaten. The sailors wept sore, for fain would they have dwelt forever in the land of dreams, but when they were once more on their vessel and had put out to sea, the breezes brought back their health to their bodies, vigour to their minds. Soon they were able to rejoice that they had left the enchanted lotus land far behind. Westward sailed the fleet of Odysseus until it reached the island of Sicily, where the Cyclopses dwelt. The Cyclopses were giants who had each but one eye fixed in the middle of his brow. Odysseus, taking with him only his own crew, landed on the island, for he wished to see the Cyclopses. He had walked but a little way when he came to a cave, in which stood baskets filled with cheeses and milk pans filled with milk. In this cave, dwelt Polyphemus, one of the sons of Poseidon, and the fiercest of all the fierce Cyclopses. Into this cave went Odysseus and his comrades. Polyphemus was not within. He was out on the hills with his flock. Let us take the cheeses and drive away the lambs and the kids that are here, 
before the giant returns, said the sailors. But Odysseus would not do as they wished, for, he said, I greatly wish to see the giant shepherd who dwells in the cave. Verily, said Odysseus, as he told the tale in after days, Verily his coming was not to be a joy to my company. Evening drew on a pace, and Polyphemus, driving his flock before him, reached the cave. When he had driven his flocks in before him, the giant took a huge rock and placed it in the doorway. Odysseus and his comrades had hidden themselves in the dimmest corner of the cave when Polyphemus entered. The giant lighted a great fire of pine wood and began to milk the ewes. Soon the flames lighted up every corner of the cave and Polyphemus saw his unexpected guests. In a voice that struck terror even into the brave hearts of the Greeks, so gruff, so loud it was, the giant demanded, Strangers, who are ye? Whence sail ye over the watery ways? On some trading enterprise, or at adventure do ye rove, even as sea robbers over the brine? Boldly then answered Odysseus, No man is my name, my ship Poseidon, the shaker of the earth, broke it to pieces, for he cast it upon the rocks at the border of your country, and brought it nigh the headland, and a wind bore it thither from the sea. But I, with these my men, escaped from utter doom. Give us, we beseech thee, food and shelter. As you know, Odysseus had not been shipwrecked in his vessel, safely anchored awaited his return, nor was his true name no man. He dared not tell the giant the truth, lest he should go in search of his ship and take it for firewood, while he and his companions were kept prisoner in the cave. The giant said not a word when Odysseus ended his tale, but he stretched out his great hand seized two of the strangers and devoured them before the eyes of their horrified companions. Then, well satisfied with his meal, he fell asleep. In the morning, the giant finished his breakfast by eating two more of his guests. Then, moving away the stone at the entrance of the cave as easily as if it had been a feather, he drove his flocks to pasture. He did not forget to replace the stone in the doorway before he turned away. Chapter 17 Odysseus Escapes from the Cave Odysseus was determined that he and his comrades should escape from the cave of the dreaded Cyclops. Hour after hour 
he pondered how he might persuade the giant to let him go. But at length he thought, I will not persuade him. I will force him to let us go. At that moment, his eye fell upon a great staff or club in the corner of the cave. He bade his companions make a sharp point to it. When this was done, he hardened it in the fire and then hid it from sight. The day passed slowly, but at length evening came and Polyphemus returned to the cave. His guests shrank into the farthest corner as the giant began his supper, but ere he finished, he again stretched out his hand, seized two of his prisoners, and devoured them. Then Odysseus offered him a draught of wine which he had brought with him from Ismarus. Deep drank the giant, and ere he fell into a sound sleep, he turned to Odysseus, saying, No man, thee will I eat last in return for thy gift of wine. Odysseus waited until he saw that Polyphemus was fast asleep. Then he bade his comrades put the point of the great staff in the fire. When it was red hot, he told them to thrust it deep into the eye of the giant. So great was the pain that the Cyclops leapt up from his sleep and hurled away the staff, uttering loud cries of agony. The giants who dwelt on the mountains round about heard the voice of Polyphemus, and together they hastened to the doorway of the cave. What hath so distressed thee, Polythemus? they cried, that thou criest thus aloud through the immortal night and makest us sleepless? Surely no mortal driveth off thy flock against thy will. Surely no slayeth thyself by force of craft. No man is slaying me by guile, nor at all by force answered Polyphemus, proud even in his pain. If no man is harming thee, it may be that Zeus has sent sickness upon thee, answered the giants. Pray thou then to thy father Poseidon for aid. As for us, we will go back to our slumbers. Odysseus laughed to himself as he heard their retreating feet, for now he was sure that he would be able to save himself and his comrades. When morning dawned, Polyphemus, still groaning with pain, groped his way to the door. Having found it, he pushed the stone a little way to the side to allow his flock to pass out of the cave. To make sure that his prisoners did not escape with the animals, he sat down by the entrance and touched the back of each ram as it passed. But Odysseus had tied his followers with oyster twigs beneath the rams, and so, in spite of the care of the giant, 
all his prisoners escaped. Odysseus himself was the last to leave the cave, holding fast to the fleece of the largest ram. No sooner had Odysseus rejoined his companions than he loosened the twigs with which he had bound them. Then together they ran to the shore, driving before them many of the giant's best sheep. These they took on board their ship and then rowed out some way from land. Polyphemus soon found that he had been outwitted, and he began to stumble towards the sea. When Odysseus saw him, he bade his men rest on their oars while he spoke to the giant in a loud voice. Cyclops, he cried, so thou wert not to eat the company of a weakling by main might in thy hollow cave. Thine evil deeds were very sure to find thee out, thou cruel man, who hadst no shame to eat thy guests within thy gates. Wherefore Zeus hath requited thee and the other gods. In his rage, Polyphemus took a great rock off the top of a mountain and hurled it in the direction from which the voice came. The rock fell near to the bow of the ship so that the waters rose and pushed the vessel toward the shore. But Odysseus seized a pole and swiftly thrust the ship back from the land. Then he bade the sailors pull for the open sea with might and main. When the ship was once more some distance from the shore, Odysseus taunted the giant yet again with his evil deeds. Cyclops, he cried, if any one of mortal men shall ask thee of the unsightly blinding of thy eye, say that it was Odysseus who blinded it, the waster of cities, son of Laertes, whose dwelling is in Ithaca. Then the giant, in impotent anger, stretched out his hands to the heavens and cried, Dear me, Poseidon, girdler of the earth, god of the dark hair, if indeed I be thy son, grant that he may never come to his home, even Odysseus, waster of cities, son of Laertes, whose dwelling is in Ithaca. Yet if he is ordained to see his friends and come into his well-built house and his own country, late may he come, and in evil case, with the loss of all his company, in the ship of strangers, and find sorrows in his house. And so it came to pass, even as the Cyclops prayed, for only after many wanderings did Odysseus reach his home, to find it in the hands of those who prayed that the king might never return to Ithaca. Chapter 18 Odysseus Returns to Ithaca The small island of Ithaca, of which Odysseus was king, 
lay on the western shore of Greece. His subjects deemed their king was dead, for ten years had passed since Troy had been destroyed, and yet he had not come home. But Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, would not believe that her lord was dead. She clung to the hope that he would yet return. Princes came to the palace to beg the queen to wed, but in vain did each one urge his suit, for hope whispered in the heart of Penelope, My lord is still alive. Laertes, the father of Odysseus, was too old. Her little son, Telemachus, was too young to help the queen when the princes rudely insisted on living in the palace and in wasting the goods of Odysseus. Again and again they entreated her to wed one among them, but the queen grew angry and rebuked them for their insolence in living in the palace. From day to day, from week to week, from month to month, even from year to year, Penelope mocked at the impatience of her suitors, for she set up in the hall of the palace a large loom and began to weave a beautiful robe. Ye princely youths, my woos, she said, now that Odysseus is dead, as ye declare, do ye abide patiently, how eager soever on this marriage of mine till I finish the robe. The princes agreed to wait until the robe was finished, but little did they dream how long the queen would take to her task. Day after day, day after day, they watched as Penelope sat at her web weaving, ever weaving, but night after night, night after night, when the insolent princess had gone to bed, the queen carefully unravelled the work that they had seen by day. For three long years did Penelope knock her suitors in this way, but when the fourth year came and the robe was still incomplete, one of the queen's serving maids betrayed her secrets to the princess. The queen could no longer refuse to wed, yet still she tried to put off the day as long as might be. So she promised to marry him who could most easily bend the great bow of Odysseus and hit the mark on which she should decide. There was now but a little while until the day would dawn on which the trial of strength and skill was to take place. Telemachus, meanwhile, had grown into a tall lad, and, guided by Athene, had left the palace where the princes wasted his health to go in search of his father. It might be that Odysseus was a captive in some distant land, but Odysseus was on his way to Ithaca, sailing in the ship of a king who had befriended him. As the vessel glided into the harbour of the little island, 
Odysseus lay asleep on the deck. So the sailors lifted him in a rug on which he lay, and put him down on his own kingdom by the side of the road. When Odysseus awoke, he did not at first know where he was, for Athene had covered the land with a thick mist. Oh, woe is me now, unto what mortal's land I am now come, cried the king, well nigh in tears with desire for his own country. Even as he spoke, Athene stood by his side, disguised as a young man. What land is this? asked Odysseus, not yet knowing that it was the goddess to whom he spoke, but thinking that it was one of the country folk. Thou art witness, stranger, or thou art come from afar, if indeed thou askest of this land, said Athene. Verily it is rough and not fit for the driving of horses, yet it is not a very sorry isle, though narrow withal. For herein is corn past telling, and herein, too, wine is found, and the rain is on it evermore, and the fresh dew, and is good for feeding goats and feeding kine. All manner of wood is here, and watering places unfailing are herein. Wherefore, stranger, the name of Ithaca hath reached even unto Troyland. Then Odysseus knew that it was the grey-eyed goddess Athene who spoke to him, and he answered, Methinks that thou speakest thus to mock me and beguile my mind. Tell me whether, in very deed, I am come to my own dear country. The goddess did not answer, but silently she scattered the mist that the king might see that he was indeed in his own kingdom. Then Odysseus was glad and stopped to kiss the earth, knowing that at long last his weary wanderings were at an end. Chapter 19 Argus the Hound Dies Athene knew that if Odysseus went to the palace, the princes would pretend that he was not the king, and would perhaps even slay him. So she bade him go, not to the palace, but to the hut of his swineherd, Eumaeus, who had remained loyal to him and to his house. That no one, not even the swineherd, might recognize the king, Athene changed him into an old beggar-man with dirty, tattered garments. In this miserable guise, Odysseus reached the hut of Eumaeus. Now Eumaeus believed that strangers were sent by Zeus, so he welcomed the beggar and gave him food. As he ate, the swineherd sat beside him, bewailing the absence of his king, who had never returned from the Trojan War. His name, said Eumaeus, even though he is not here, 
it shameth me to speak, for he loved me exceedingly, and cared for me at heart. Nay, I call him worshipful, albeit he is far from hence. Much, too, did the swineherd tell of Penelope, of Telemachus, and of how the insolent suitors lived at the palace and wasted the king's goods. As Odysseus listened, he longed to go at once to the palace to avenge his wrongs. That night the king spent in the hut of his swineherd, lying before the fire, while over him the swineherd flung a covering of goatskins. But Eumaeus did not sleep. He cast over his shoulders a rough mantle, and taking with him a sharp sword, he went out to guard his herd of swine. And the king was glad when he saw how well the swineherd cared for the flocks of his absent lord. In the morning, as Eumaeus kindled a fire and prepared breakfast for the stranger, footsteps were heard without. Telemachus had returned to Ithaca, having sought for his father in vain. Eumaeus hastened to welcome his master's son, and kissed him all over as one escaped from death. Then he set before the prince the best that his hut could provide. When Telemachus had eaten and had drank sweet wine out of a wooden goblet, he bade Eumaeus hasten to the palace to tell his mother that he had come home safely. So the swineherd took his sandals, bound them on his feet, and set out for the city. Odysseus and Telemachus were left alone. Then Athene came to the hut unseen, and changed Odysseus into his own goodly form, bidding him tell Telemachus who he was. At first the prince could not believe that this stranger, so strong, so fair, was Odysseus, but when at length he knew that it was indeed his father, he embraced him, while tears of joy fell down his cheeks. Then Athene bade them determine how the king should make himself known to Penelope, and how the greedy and insolent suitors should be punished. The father and son talked long together, and they agreed that on the morrow Telemachus should go to the palace, but to no one, no, not even Penelope, was he to tell that Odysseus had returned. The arms that hung in the hall of the palace the prince was to hide in his own room, so that when the time for the king's revenge should come, the suitors might find neither sword nor shield with which to defend themselves. Odysseus was to follow his son to the palace when a few hours had passed, disguised once more as a beggar. So, on the morrow, Telemachus set out for the palace. As he entered the hall, the first to see him 
was his father's old nurse, Euryclea. She was busy spreading the skins upon the oaken chairs, but she left her work and ran to greet the prince, kissing him lovingly on the head and shoulders. Penelope, too, coming from her chamber, saw him and cast her arms about her dear son and fell a-weeping and kissed his face and both his beautiful eyes. Thou art come, Telemachus, she said, a sweet light in the dark. Methought I should never see thee again. While Telemachus was still telling his lady mother all that had befallen him in his search for his father, the beggar, with Eumaeus by his side, entered the court of the palace. In the court lay Argus, the great hound that Odysseus himself had trained ere he went to Troy. Old was he now, and despised, for no longer could he run in the hunt, swift as the wind. The princes had banished him from the hall, while by the servants he was spurned. As the beggar drew near, Argus raised his head, looked at the stranger, and began to wag his tail to show his joy, for rags could not hide his master from the faithful hound. Odysseus turned his head away, that Eumaeus might not see his tears. Surely a hound so noble as this should not lie thus neglected in the yard, he said to the swine herd. In very truth, answered Eumaeus, this is the dog of a man that has died in a far land. If he were what once he was in limb and in the feats of the chase, when Odysseus left him to go to Troy, soon wouldst thou marvel at the sight of his swiftness and his strength. There was no beast that could flee from him in the deep places of the wood when he was in pursuit of prey. As the king and the swineherd passed on into the palace, Argus fell back content to die, for after watching and waiting for twenty years, he had seen his master once again. Chapter 20 The Bow of Odysseus In the hall of the palace, the suitors sat feasting, as was their custom. When Eumaeus entered, followed by the beggar, they no sooner caught sight of him than they began to mock his rags. But Telemachus took a loaf and gave it to the stranger, bidding him go to each prince and beg for himself, for, said he, shame is an ill-mate of a needy man. One haughty suitor, named Antinous, rebuked Eumaeus for bringing a beggar to the palace. Have we not here vagrants enough, he said in angry tones, killjoys of the feast, and he seized a footstool and struck Odysseus on the shoulder. Penelope heard how Antinous had treated the stranger in her halls, and she was angry. 
Turning to her old nurse Euryclea, she said, Nurse, they are all enemies, for they all devise evil continually. But of them all, Antinous is the most like to black fate. Some hapless stranger is roaming about the house, begging alms of the men as his needs bid him. All the others filled his wallet and gave him somewhat, but Antinous smote him at the base of the right shoulder with a stool. Then she summoned Eumaeus and bade him send the stranger to her, for she wished to know if he had heard aught of Odysseus as he wandered from place to place. So when evening came, the old nurse brought a settle, spread over it a fleece, and placed it near to Penelope. Then the beggar was brought to the queen's room, and, sitting on the settle, he told to her many a tale, and some were true, and some were false, for he would not yet have her know that he himself was her lord Odysseus. Penelope wept as she listened to the stories the stranger told, for he had seen Odysseus, and she thought that her husband might yet return in time to save her from the suitors whom she despised. But at length the queen dried her tears and called to Euryclea to come wash the feet of the stranger, who was of the same age as her master. The old woman answered, Gladly will I wash his feet, for many strangers travel-worn have ere now come hither, but I say that I have never seen any so like another as this stranger is like Odysseus, in fashion, in voice, and in feet. Then the king feared lest his old nurse should know him, and he turned his face from the hearth. But she, as she tended him, was a scar on the spot where a boar had wounded him long years before, and she knew her master had come. Tears well nigh choked her, yet she touched his chin lightly and said, Ye, verily, thou art Odysseus, my dear child. But when she would have told the queen, Odysseus bade her be silent until he had taken revenge on the princes who were feasting in his palace. As she dismissed the stranger, Penelope told him that on the morrow the suitors had held a feast when they were to be contended for her hand. Him who shall most easily bend the bow of Odysseus I have promised to wed, she said. Then will I go and forsake this house, this house of my wedlock, so fair and filled with all livelihood, which methinks I shall yet remember, I, in a dream. Then Odysseus answered, Wife revered of Odysseus, no longer delay this contest in thy halls, for, lo, Odysseus will be here before these men, for all their handling of this polished bow, shall have strung it 
and shot the arrow to the mark. Penelope scarce heard the stranger's words, so troubled were her thoughts. She bade him farewell, then went to her room to weep for her absent lord, until grey-eyed Athene cast sweet sleep upon her lids. On the morrow, Odysseus awoke early, and as he thought of all that he had hoped to do that day, he lifted up his hands to Zeus. O father Zeus, he cried, if thou hast led me to mine own country of good will, then give me a sign. And in answer, the god thundered from Olympus, and Odysseus knew the voice of the god and was glad. Penelope too arose early on this fateful day, and when she had put on her royal robes, she came down the wide staircase from her chamber, carrying in her hand the strong key of her lord's treasure chest. She unlocked the chest, and, taking from it the great bow in its case, she laid it upon her knee and wept over it. Then, Drawing the bow from its case, she carried it into the hall where the suitors were feasting. Ye suitors, she said, as she laid down before them the bow and the quiver of arrows. Ye suitors who devour this house, make pretense that ye wish to wed me. Lo, here is a proof of your skill. Here is the bow of the great Odysseus. Whoso shall bend it easiest in his hands and shoot an arrow nearest to the mark I set, him I will follow, leaving the house of my wedlock, so fair which methinks I shall yet remember, I in a dream. Then each suitor in turn tried to bend the mighty bow, but each tried in vain. Give me the bow cried the beggar, as he saw that the suitors had failed to bend the mighty bow. Give it to me, that I may prove that my hands are strong. The princes laughed at the words of the stranger. How should the old man bend the bow, which they in their youthful strength were unable to move? But Telemachus gave the bow into the stranger's hands, for said he, I would fain see if the wanderer can bend the bow of Odysseus. Then, turning to his mother, the prince besought her to go to her daily tasks until the contest was over, for not for her eyes was the dreaded revenge of Odysseus. So Penelope with her maidens went to her room, and as she spun, she mourned for her absent lord. In the hall, Odysseus stood with his beloved bow in his hand. Carefully, he tested it, lest harm had befallen it in his absence. Then, taking an arrow from the quiver, he placed it on the bow and drew the string. And lo, it sped to its mark and reached the wall beyond. At once, Telemachus, his sharp sword in his hand, sprang to his father's side, while Eumaeus, 
to whom the beggar's secret had been told, followed him fast. The suitors leaped to their feet in dismay as the arrows of Odysseus fell swiftly among them. Then they turned to the walls to seek the arms which usually hung there, but Telemachus had carried them away. Not until the proud suitors were slain did Odysseus cease to bend his bow. But at length all was over, and none were left to mock at the stranger. Then Odysseus bade Eurycleia go tell Penelope that her lord had returned and awaited her in the hall. The queen lay on her bed fast asleep when the old nurse broke into her room, and, all tremulous with joy, told her that Odysseus had come and slain the suitors. Too good were the tidings for Penelope to believe. Dear nurse, she cried, be not so foolish. Why dost thou mock my sorrow? It may be that one of the gods hath slain the suitors, but Odysseus himself hath perished in a strange land. Nay, I mock thee not, dear child, answered Eurycleia. The stranger with whom thou didst talk yesterday is Odysseus. Yet Penelope could not believe that her lord had returned. She spoke sadly to the old nurse, telling her that she was deceived and did not understand the ways of the gods. Nonetheless, she added, let us go to my child, that I may see the suitors dead and him that slew them. Down in the hall, Odysseus, clothed no longer in rags, but in bright apparel, awaited his wife. Then Penelope, as she gazed upon him, knew that it was indeed Odysseus, and she threw her arms around him and kissed him, saying, Be not angry with me, Odysseus, that I did not know thee when I first saw thee, for ever I feared lest another than thou should deceive me, saying he was my husband. But now I know that thou art indeed he. So welcome to her was the sight of her lord, that her white arm she would never quite let go from his neck. Thus, after twenty years, did Odysseus come back to Ithaca.